Mindfulness Mode 519. So I get to see that I'm operating out of the intention of that field of awareness as my basis of operation, rather than operating out of thought. Mindful Tribe, today I have with me an associate clinical professor of psychology at the Harvard Medical School, and he served on the faculty there for over 38 years. He's a senior meditation master. I have Daniel Brown, PhD, with me today. Hey, Dan, are you in mindfulness mode today? Awareness mode, awakened awareness mode. Awakened awareness mode. And I like the fact that when we communicated previous to the show, you you said that you don't really consider yourself a mindfulness person. And I want to dig right in and talk about that. I know that mindfulness is a relatively recent term, and it's a term that's used more in the mainstream. Tell me about where you are and the work you do and how you consider yourself in relation to this topic of mindfulness. Well, there are two main methods for meditation. One is called concentration training, and the other is called pure awareness meditations. So with concentration training, the mind is likened to be like a wild elephant. Elephants are very smart and they're very strong, but they get spooked easily. And when they run a stampede, they cause a lot of damage. So the ordinary mind is likened to be like a wild elephant. There are two ways you can train the elephant. One, you can tie a rope on the chain on the elephant's neck and tie it to a stake. And every time the elephant wanders off, it feels the pull of the rope. It figures it out after a while, it can't go anywhere. That's a metaphor for concentration. You tie the rope of concentration onto a single object, and every time it goes anywhere else, you keep stirring it back and bringing it back, pulling it back to the object. Eventually, it learns to stay on the object. So either you're staying on the object or you're chasing after some distraction. That's concentration training. The other way you can train the mind is just let, let the elephant go wherever it wants to go. And you track it every moment by moment. That's a pure awareness meditation. They train different skills. So if you look at concentration, for example, from a neuropsychological point of view, it activates the anterior cingulate cortex, which is the concentration center of the brain. When we have competing attention demands, it, it gets activated, so we have to put effort to focus on one thing and tuning everything else out. So a standard way of studying that as a psychologist is a thing called a Stroop test. Mm-hmm. If I show you an index card with a big text and printed out green, but the color of the text is red, you do a double take. You have to focus on the text in order to turn tune out the color to focus more carefully on the text. So when we have competing intentional demands like that, we activate the anterior cingulate cortex, the ACC. The ACC is that area of the brain that's underactive in children and adults who have attention deficit disorder. It's offline. The ACC gets activated in concentration meditation. The ACC gets activated when the hypnotic induction ceremony, when you focus on just the words of the hypnotist and turn everything else out. The ACC is active in an athlete who goes into peak performance mode or the zone or a flow state. They activate spontaneously the ACC. The brain's an equal opportunity employer. It doesn't make a difference whether you use drugs or whether you use like Ritalin or, or Adderall or whether you use mind-body techniques. They all activate the same common pathway, the ACC. That's concentration training. And there are two skills there, staying on the object for a longer and longer period of time, on the one hand, and detecting distraction more immediately so you don't get caught up in it. Now, pure awareness meditation is just no object. Whatever comes up next is the next object of meditation. So an example of that would be Krishnamurti's choiceless awareness. In the Burmese tradition, they said it's very hard to just say beware of everything. So they use the categories of labels. So when you're looking at something, you say looking. When you're thinking something, you say thinking, not the content. 
use the categories as a way of approximating a continuous state of non-judgmental awareness. And that activates in neurocircuitry terms the posterior cingulate cortex, it deactivates that. The other end of the cingulate cortex is the posterior cingulate cortex, which is the categorizing and judgmental part of the brain. So when you're practicing Western version of mindfulness, which is essentially continuous non-judgmental awareness, that's where you're deactivating. You're, deactivating. you're taking the, the judgmental part of the brain off mind. You just have continuous awareness and everything is equally as interesting. It's interesting. There are four studies that show that the PCC gets under-activated in Burmese mindfulness. It goes offline. There are two studies that show that psilocybin does the same thing. It deactivates the PCC. So if you're sitting there in a psychedelic state and everything's equally far out and equally as interesting, it's similar things in mindfulness. Well, you... So those are, those are the two basic skills in meditation, two styles of meditation. Right, yeah. Thanks for, for elaborating on that. And I want to go back to what you said about awakening, the path towards awakening. And for our listeners... Tell us what awakening means to you and why we should seek to be awakened. Well, awakening is the, is the confluence of all the teachings we say in Buddhism. It's the end point. If you set a foundation of awakening and you stabilize it so you have it all the time in all situations, that becomes the foundation for a full enlightenment in Buddhahood. So it's the first major realization. And it's, it's a state of, uh, a condition of, Limitless, boundless, timeless awareness, which is knowing awareness, it was brilliantly knowing and loving, and is always right here, but we don't see it. So, in the essence traditions like Mahamudra or Dzogchen or Great Completion Meditation or the Tantras, the metaphor that's used is the sun. When the sun is clouded over and the clouds clear away and the sun comes out, we say the sun just came out. Is that accurate? It's not. No, it the isn't. sun's always shining, it's always right here but we don't see it from the clouds. So the ordinary mind has a number of bad habits and it clouds over everything. For example, we get lost in thought. We get mm-hmm. so caught up in thought, we think that thought is the same thing as awareness. We get lost in the sense of self. I get lost in damnness. I get extremely self-important at times and I get caught up in my little projects. I get lost in the sense of time. I get lost in the sense of localization of my consciousness. And that whole pathway is popularized by the mantra in the Heart Sutra. It goes like this in Sanskrit. Gate, gate, paragate, paralasam gate, bodhisvaha. Literally, it means gone, gone, gone way beyond, gone way, way beyond. Ooh, what a realization. And here's what it means. It's the whole pathway. In our ordinary life, we get caught up in thought. We think that thought is the same thing as awareness. But if I concentrate the mind down, one of the consequences of concentrating not mindfulness meditation, but pure concentration meditation is that thought elaboration winds down and eventually stops. So I have long periods of stillness, absent of all thought activity. Sometimes I might go for half an hour, an hour with having only two or three little fleeting thoughts. So where is my awareness then? I, it, it, I'm not operating on a thought anymore. So I get to see that I'm operating out of the intention of that field of awareness as my basis of operation, rather than operating on a thought. So I, 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 that's the first gate in the Hat Sutra gone beyond thought. Awareness gone beyond thought is my basis of operation. Then I get caught up in sense of self. But if I look around for the self, I find that no matter what I can look for, it keeps slipping away as unfindable. And I can shift my base of operation out of getting caught up in thought and in damnness to operating out of that larger field of awareness. And I'm operating out of now the intention of awareness, cleaned up of the sense of self. That's the second gate. 
awareness gone beyond self-representation or, or personal identity to the larger field of awareness. Then I get caught up in time. Things come and go in the field, but the field itself, if I look into the nature of the field, it's absolutely timeless. I go beyond time. I don't get rid of it. But that's not where I'm operating on. I'm operating out of a timeless field of awareness. And since time and space are related, it's also not only timeless and changeless, but it's boundless and limitless. Huge. And if I shift that basis of operation, that's the foundation or the gateway to the Mahayana, where there's a, there's a limitless field of brilliantly knowing awareness. And everything is interconnected within that same field. So we all share that same field of awareness, and we all influence each other within that field. That's the, that's the discovery of simultaneous mind, all at onceness, which is not part of the Theravadan system. It's a new discovery within Mahayana. In Western terms, we would say you're shifting from temporal processing or processing things in time to parallel processing, processing things in terms of degrees of all at onceness. That's the third shift, and it's a much bigger shift. So that's why it's called going way beyond the convention of time and space to ocean-like, boundless, limitless, timeless, changeless awareness is your basis of operation. But then I find I'm still operating out of duality, and I'm still operating out of a localized sense of self. But with the right instructions, I can take a larger view, and I can become that. I can I can drop out the, the localization and the duality. I can become that unbounded wholeness, which is a that's that's awakened awareness. It's limitless, boundless, timeless, always right here, brilliantly knowing, lucid, awakened awareness, love. And once I shift into that, I have to stabilize it, so I live out of it all the time. That changes everything because it opens your heart. It's moving. It's not ordinary awareness. It's it's, it's evidently distinct. It's, as we say, it has it is a sacredness. It has it has awakeness. It has brilliantly knowing. It's it, the qualities are distinctly different from ordinary awareness. I want to talk. First, I want to talk first. about leadership. Okay, if that's okay. How do we know whether we are cut out to be uh, a realized leader? Well, I teach a course at Harvard Medical School for 30 years now on performance excellence. I do one every December for two days. It's, uh, we do one day on Western peak performance research and the second day on concentration training because most of the Western research shows that concentration training, not mindfulness, is the core of heightened attentiveness, is the core of being in a flow state or high, high performance state. So I do that for two days and... Then we put together a, a list of immersion courses for people who want to spend a, a month, a week or a month as executives training the more, more advanced things in terms of emotional growth, bringing out the best sense of self, bringing out the best quality of relationships. You know, all that's on a site called uh, Mind Only. So we tried to make all that and translate it into exercises that people actually do and they would evolve themselves as leaders. So we see the evolution as twofold. One is having good psychological maturity, not flawed leadership, psychologically impaired leadership, as we have seen some, some more recently, and, but, but psychologically mature in, on the one hand and spiritually mature on the other hand. So they operate of a larger vision in life because there's a lot of research that shows that people who operate out of a larger vision in life, it's a, a spiritual vision, are more resilient. They make more compassionate decisions. They look at the larger pictures in life and uh, they get things done better. So my notion of realized leadership is to make the best tools of Western psychology and the best of these contemplative traditions available to people so they can actually evolve themselves into realized leaders. 
So that's mindonly.com. So check that out. Information about leadership, being a realized leader at mindonly.com. And you work with attachment a lot. And I know that you have another website called attachmentproject.org. Yes. Let's talk about that, that work that you do with attachment. Well, there are two relational maps. The first map is an attachment map. It develops at around 18 months from between 10 and 24 months concurrent with development of a symbolic or representational thinking. And there are four models that develop. Secure attachment means that the child is secure and, and comfortable in close relationships. And the more they safe and comfortable they feel in that close relationship, the more they become independent and explore more. So secure attachment is a combination of attachment security and healthy exploration and becoming independent. But some people uh, take the attachment system offline. We call them as adults dismissing attached. They don't connect with people. They deactivate the attachment system and they become over-exploratory and they become pseudo-independent. But they can't really connect with people and stay in close relationships. And if they are in a relationship, they don't really talk about their feelings very much. Mm -hmm. That's the dismissing attachment map. This next, the opposite of that is the is the, what we call anxious preoccupied. They get clingy in relationships. They they take the exploratory system offline, so they have a weak sense of self. Don't develop the sense of self very much, and they get over caretaking in relationships. They always play off other people's needs and it's expensive their own. And the fourth group is called disorganized attached, and they deactivate both the attachment system and the exploratory system. Now those maps are pretty much in place at eighteen months. And three quarters of those people after 40 years haven't changed the map at all. So those are, we call that problems with relationships, whether you connect or not. Then there's a second map that develops around three, three to four years of age, which is much more based on belief systems, stable core beliefs about what's possible and what's not possible in relationships and how the self would evolve in a relationship or not evolve in a relationship. Those are called CCRT maps, core conflict relational team maps. They come at a time when you can remember and uh, articulate them. So what we do is we take a history of all the intimate relationships in a person's life and look for the patterns like really a complex musical score. You see that behavior is not all over the map. They're always making the same infinite variations on one or two core themes. So you can spell out those themes and you can make a different map and change people to correct their how they select relationships. So they, they select fulfilling relationships rather than dysfunctional relationships over and over again. So if they have an attachment problem, that's a problem with relationships. If they have a core conflict relationship problem, they have problems within relationships and selecting wrong. So we want to correct either one or both of those maps and develop a new positive map so that they are happy in relationships. We call that secure intimacy. It's reciprocal and, it's, and it's, that's what we want people to get to. They get happy in their relationships in life, fulfilling. Look, almost every popular song is written about dysfunctional relationships. So we spend a lot of time preoccupied with our waking lives for trying to get relationships right, and we don't. So that's where Western psychology comes in. It's, it's contributed a lot to our understanding of how to make relationships better, and develop a better internal positive map. We call it positive remapping. So whether it be an attachment map or a core conflict relation map, we want to make a new positive map that works for that individual. It takes about for core conversation, it takes about 30 to 50 sessions to do that. Attachment maps take about half a year to about two, two to three years to develop. 
we're just doing a major outcome study on our treatment of attachment. And we got really good results. You know, initial pilot testing, the treatment effect size was 4.2. Most good treatments are 0.8 or above. So this is really good. Mm-hmm. Well, you've been an expert forensic law witness for some time, and you've test you've testified in over two hundred child abuse cases. When you when you're doing that and you're on the stand to testify, is it difficult not to get pulled into the negativity and the the trauma of this no, kind not, of situation? Not, not, at all, not at all. That's where. Operating out of that large expanse comes when there's no reactivity in that expanse of awakened awareness. So if I don't get reactive, all I need is four or five questions from the attorney on the other side, and I got his strategies, and I'm going to have fun with that. I'm fiercely protective of kids in mm-hmm. court. I worked on the war crime tribunal for 12 years. We set up a standard of evidence for and a new law. We got a new law on the books. And when two sides are fighting and one side wins and they go into the village and they take the women to dispose of war and rape them, that's now a 30-year non-parolable war crime. Not the people who commit the rape, who's in charge of the troops. That's now a 30-year non-parolable, non-negotiable war crime. I'm happy to get that on the books for, for the sake of women. Mm-hmm. It's been challenged five times, never successfully. It's still on it for 25 years now. Oh, wow. Wow. And given today was the sentencing of Harvey Weinstein. It's a good, it's timely. We protect women, we protect children. Right. And there's so much more we can do. How can we, in the mainstream world, move toward protecting women and children more? See them as equal. And they are equal. And it's about respect. You know what screws it up is power. Right. If you learn one lesson in spiritual practice, the main lesson is self-importance isn't terribly important. Right. Yeah, and that's all about ego, isn't it? Call it what you will, self-importance. Right. So what are you working on right now? Are you you writing something right now? I'm writing two things. One is that um, His Holiness Manry Treasing, who is the head of the lineage holder for for the bond, is the... Then he told her for the bond. I worked with him for the last 10 years. He was the best teacher I've ever had, Tibetan teacher. Mm-hmm. And about five years ago, he brought out all the advanced cave and hermitage yogi texts. He said, I have a favor to ask you. These practices are going to die out because nobody's advanced anymore. They can do these practices. Very few people can do them. So I want you to put them in a, translate them all into English. And I want you to put them in a form that works for Westerners. Will you do that? What am I going to do? Say, no, I don't feel like it. <laughs> So I suspended my clinical practice and my clinical teaching for three and a half years. Got a benefactor to match my salary. So I didn't go bankrupt doing this. And I now have eight books coming out of all the translations. And one book has 11 different yogi texts in it, the most advanced of all the cave and hermit yogi texts in it. It's called Self-Arising, Threefold Embodiment of Enlightenment. That's now out. It's on Amazon. So we, we, we made three professional films of all the yogic exercises. We're 80% done with this project. I'm finishing it up now. I'm in the last of the eight translations. It's a rather large opus on 2,200 pages in Tibetan on an overview of Dzogchen, a great completion practice from a bond perspective. So I'm trying to finish that up. And then clinical things, I'm trying to take all my 50 years of clinical teaching as a psychologist and put it all online for the next generation, so on. 
I just been doing up an upgrade on all the neuros the neurosciences come out on conversion disorders. And I'm writing a textbook on conversion disorders at the moment, treatment, because nobody knows how to treat them anymore. So you're the author of 24 books. Yes. So uh, what book have you not written that you're hoping to write? I'm satisfied with what I've written. I'd like to get this book on conversion disorders done. Right. I'd like to write a book on core conflict relational themes and the other, the other, the other relational map because we have one on attachment that's doing well. I'd like to get the other side of the equation out there for people. That, that's what I'd like to do. Those two mm -hmm. things. Mm-hmm. So do you plan to do those next? If I stay is... healthy, I have Parkinson's at the moment, so I'm trying to stabilize my Parkinson's. Oh, do you? Okay. And so what are you doing in order to try to stabilize that? Adjusting the meds. We're working at the Movement Disorders Clinic at Mass General. They just reviewed my case and they said they just I mean, totally redo the medications and it's working. And I have, I'm on the docket for the only stem cell treatment of Parkinson's in this country in, in April. I'm doing uh, everything I can to keep going here. Right. Yeah. When I was in Nepal this last August, uh, all the cave yogis came out and they did a long life ceremony for me. They wanted me to stay around for a while. Uh -huh. I appreciate what I've been trying to preserve these teachings. So they want me to keep going here. So I'm trying to keep going the best I can for everybody's sake. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you've done a tremendous amount to help the world and written all these books and so on. As we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick questions. And the first one is this, who is one person who has been the most powerful influence in your life when it comes to this topic of being focused and grounded and mindful? His Holiness men retreating the spiritual lineage holder for all the bond teachings. In the bond, they have uh, nine levels of reading minds and he reads minds openly. He, he knows all the content of what you're thinking, which is a little bit weird to get used to at first. But when I was in retreat, I would go to his room and he would say, now do this. You know, you saw right away where I was in my mind. He would just guide me, intensely guide me. Mm. When I went there, I was teaching meditation after years and I could have awakening at the end of a retreat and maybe stabilize it for five or 10 minutes. And after three weeks of being with him, I had it all the time and never went away again, ever. Wow. That's quality teaching. Wow. And sure. we took off from there. How has your... He's taught me the inner fire practice. I have a complete mastery of the inner fire practice. Levels of bypassing visions. There are four levels of visions. I've gone through all the four levels of visions with him. He taught me the meditations for dream yoga, for, and that's a little different from Western lucid dreaming because the Western lucid dreaming, you learn to be ordinary awake during dreams. But here you have to be awakened awareness during dream. That's different. Mm -hmm. Not ordinary awareness. He taught me the practices for extracting vital essence from the universe so you don't have to eat food when you're in a retreat. Amazing practices. So he changed everything in my life. Wow. And before he died this last year, he sat down with me and gave me all the secret pith instructions for full enlightenment. He wanted to make sure I had them good translated. And he told me what to translate to bring them to the West. Mm -hmm. So if we finish up this project, we'll leave a complete set of all the teachings behind all the way up through Buddhahood. I'm just how, doing what he asked. How have your emotions been affected from all of this study that you've done? Not anything has any grab anymore, except I laugh a lot and cry a lot these days. Mm-hmm. The condition of the world breaks my heart all the time. Right. The fact that people don't realize the sacredness of this world and what it really is breaks my heart. The fact that people treat each other so badly breaks my heart. And in the course of all of that, there's a lot of joy and positivity. True. Absolutely. Tell us about breathing. How is breathing an important part of your practice? If I don't breathe, I don't stay alive. 
Do you do any kind of breathing exercises or any special focus on breathing? We used to do that when we, we focused on what we call the three-point object when we did the concentration training. Mm-hmm. The rising breath, then the falling breath, and then the interval between the breaths we focus on the body. We call that the three-point object. I did that for years. Mm-hmm. Then the goal became staying in awakened awareness all the time. So now if I do the breathing, is the body's in that, in that vast expanse, and the breathing just arises in that vast expanse. So it's, it's natural. We call that king of samadhi practice. You hold a view of awakened mind simultaneous to focusing pinpointed on the concentration, concentration object. Mm-hmm. That's easy to do now. Dan, if someone's listening today and they're hearing you for the first time and they haven't heard of you before and they would like to become more familiar with your thoughts, your ideas, your teachings, your work, what one of your books would you recommend they read? Uh, the books are more technical or the translations. The best thing is the websites. I'm trying to take all my executive training and performance excellence courses are online at a site called Mind Only. So you'd recommend they go to Mind Only. Or if they dot... want to learn about the meditations that we teach, it's called PointingOutWay.org. Right, PointingOutWay.org and MindOnly.com. All, all around the world. That's the. I taught with Tibetan for 15 years, concentration and basic emptiness practice, and they don't know how to teach Westerners. So we struggle a lot as a team together. Mm. Denmo Locha Rinpoche, when he was alive, he was the abbot of Namgyal Monastery, the Dalai Lama's monastery in Damsala. And we struggled a lot. So we, he obviously talked with the Dalai Lama. So in 1986, I was talking with the Dalai Lama. He said, stick around, there's somebody who wants you to meet. It's a very unusual style of teaching. So I met this man, he sat down, said they sit down, and for the next six hours, he gave a running, walking commentary, live commentary on all the, all the stages of inner fire practice with the central channel. I never said anything quite detailed. And then he made sure I was getting it right by, by having me go over with me as I was doing it. He walked me through everything. He said, this is how you teach Westerners. And that was from an old lineage called 84 Wandering Masters. And they, it's a relationally based way of teaching that you teach in small groups or one-on-one. You guide them through the process. You give them an overview of what you're doing next. You guide them through the process. And then you, you talk with them to make sure they get not developing bad habits and they're getting it right. That's called the pointing out style of teaching. Right. Hence the website pointingoutway.org. Right. And when's your next retreat? Is it coming up? The next one, let's see. We're in Australia in two weeks. Oh, in, in two weeks. In, in, in Melbourne in two weeks. Right. I'm not, I'm not terrified about the coronavirus. We're going to go anyway. Right. hope we don't get stranded there, but I'm going to just go anyway. Well, I want to ask if there is any uh, app at all that you would recommend. I know a lot of people not, use... It's not my world of apps. I don't know them. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show today and uh, being with us and enlightening us a little bit about what you teach and what you do. Do you have any final words for our listeners? Yes, we're trying to bring science to this. So we have the only study on the neurocircuitry of what happens in the brain when the people shift from ordinary mind to awakened mind. And what we found is an area of the parietal system that's ordinarily associated with shifting from a local to a much more wider global awareness opens up. But the bandwidth of activity and the amplitude of activity is 60, 65 hertz in all the subjects, 30 subjects. So what we found was that uh, that region of interest gets activated and all the cells are firing synchronistically. So awake means awake. It's a very unusual finding to get gamma activity. And where can we learn more about that? It's on the website. It's just it's, it's, the paper is published in Cogn- Con- Consciousness and Cognition and done it in collaboration with Judd Brewer's lab at Massachusetts. Now he's at Brown University. So now there's, there's the second major landmark in this 
this pathway is uh, an experience in Tibetan called Sangye, the eradication of all negative states and the flourishing of 80 positive states of a Buddha mind. So at some point, you eradicate all negative states and you live in a world of positivity, all positivity. And we have a number of subjects who can do that now. So we have a grant from the Fetzer Foundation to study that Sangye. I think that that kind of operating out of positivity and uh, no negative states has profound implications for mental health. So we're about to see what's happening in neurocircuitry. We're just starting to run subjects. And we have one subject who became a Buddha for the last two years, totally stable. And we're going to look at the neurocircuitry of full enlightenment. So if we can teach people the methods to open up awakening, Sangye and full Buddhahood, and leave them behind in a way that works for Westerners, and we have the science that shows that there's certain unusual things that happen in the brain in all these three conditions, then I think that's something my, that's important. That's what I'm trying to do. Well, thank you for all the work that you've done and all the work that you're continuing to do. And thank you very much for coming on the Mindfulness Mode podcast, Dan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. All the best to you. Bye now.